Please take your Bibles and open them to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10. And this morning we're going to look at verses 19 through 25. Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. I'll give you a second to turn there. It's a passage many of you are very familiar with. It says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, since these things are true, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, I think all of us in here are familiar with the fictional, masked, ex-Texas ranger who goes about fighting injustice in the American Old West. Do you know who I'm talking about? The fictional, masked, ex-Texas ranger who goes about fighting injustice in the American Old West. That's the Wikipedia definition for the Lone Ranger. That's right. Now, the Lone Ranger is a cool dude. I remember as a kid watching the Lone Ranger. He, um, he makes for great television. Uh, I understand, I don't know that I've listened to any of it, but he actually was on the radio even before he was on television. So we're going way back, okay? The Lone Ranger was a, a radio drama. He was a television series, a television character. And I understand that next year he's also going to be in a movie alongside Johnny Depp. Um, so I don't, I, and I know this because I Googled Lone Ranger last night. Um, I have no intention of going and seeing the movie, um, but they're going to make a new movie about the Lone Ranger. The Lone Ranger is a really cool guy, and again, he makes for an awesome superhero, not as awesome as Jason Bourne, but he makes for an awesome superhero, but he makes for a terrible way to live the Christian life, right? The Lone Ranger. Now, he's called the Lone Ranger, but he's not really alone, right? He has Tonto with him. Um, but Tonto doesn't count, okay? So he's alone. He's a lone ranger. His other rangers um, had abandoned him or been killed, and now he's all alone. And I'm afraid that for many of us, we actually seek to live the Christian life in a very similar way to the way the lone ranger does his law enforcing, right? He's kind of the lone desperado. He's that masked man. He doesn't need anyone else's help. He can handle things on his own. He's got everything under control, and again, it makes for a really cool television series, but it makes for a terrible way to actually live the Christian life because God has made it very clear in the scriptures that we're, that we're not to live alone. We're not to, to go it alone. We don't have the strength necessary to do what God has called us to do all by ourselves. And yet many Christians live their Christian lives this way. Sure, they come to church on Sunday and they gather with God's people and they sing the hymns of the faith and they listen to a preacher deliver a sermon, a monologue, and then they leave that service and they go about living their lives throughout the course of a week very much like the Lone Ranger. And then they come back together on Sunday morning and they gather with other Lone Rangers for a service that's held and then they leave and they all live their lone rangerly sort of Christian life 
during the week. And the passage that we're going to look at this morning is going to make very clear to us that that's not the way we're to live our Christian lives. We, we live this lone rangerly way for a lot of different reasons. For some of us, it's because we're proud and we don't think we need the support and help and influence and input of other Christians. For some, it's because we're afraid. We actually don't want other people knowing us that well. The Lone Ranger, the mask, is actually a very protective thing for us where we can, we can maintain a, a safe and healthy distance from other Christians. Some simply don't think we need it. We think, well, I'd go to church. I'm a Christian. I've got a Bible. I do devotions. I'm, I'm good to go. For some, it's that we're busy. There's a lot of different reasons why we may choose to live like a Lone Ranger The scripture says we're not intended to live this way. We're meant to live in Christian community. Jesus Christ himself established the church. He didn't just save individuals and then kind of leave them on their own. The work that God is doing is gathering to himself a body of people, an assembly, the church, the, the New Testament refers to the church as an assembly. Paul wrote letters, yes, to individuals like Timothy and Titus, but most of his letter writing was done to a church at Ephesus and and at Colossae at Rome. There is the expectation in the scripture that we live in Christian community. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, said, Christ works on us above all else through each other. We are, we're carriers of him. And so when we interact with each other, we, we infect each other with the good news of the gospel, right? So if I have some kind of infectious uh, disease this morning, some kind of flu, and I shake hands with many of you after I've sneezed on my own hand, um, you now become carriers of this same virus, right? We are carriers of Christ, and we are to intentionally interact with each other in a way that shares Christ with each other on purpose. We can't live a Lone Ranger Christian life A healthy relationship with Christ and knowledge of his gospel will result in true Christian fellowship. That's the emphasis of the passage we're going to look at this morning. We must practice true Christian fellowship because of who Christ is and what he's done. Look again in verses 24 and 25. We're to consider how to stir up one another, to love and good works. We're not to neglect meeting together. But verses 24 and 25 flow right out of verses 19 through 23. So we've got to look at the whole passage before we jump into these passages that deal very specifically with the fellowship. Before we dive in, let's think about the book of Hebrews, who it was written to and what it's written about. Its original readers would have been Christians who were very familiar with the Old Testament form of Judaism, of the law and keeping of the law and the traditions of Old Testament Judaism. The book of Hebrews works to answer two questions very diligently, very systematically. And many of you are very familiar with the book of Hebrews. And for many of you, this may be even a favorite book in the scriptures that answers these two questions. Who is Jesus and what has he done? And as you read through, starting in chapter one, as you read through the book, the chapters of Hebrews, you see that Jesus is this great high priest He is fully God and fully man. He's the fulfillment of all the Old Testament law and the prophets. He's the perfect and final sacrifice. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses. He's the high priest of a better covenant. And starting in verse 19 of the chapter that we're looking at, verse 10, the book begins 
to actually make some, some commands, some imperatives. It begins to make application to the things that we've learned. Statements to be obeyed in the light of who Jesus Christ is. You see right there, the very first word in verse 19 says, therefore. And you know, being good students of Scripture, when you come to the word therefore, you're supposed to find out what the therefore, you know this, is therefore. What's the therefore, therefore, right? Well, the word therefore is pointing back to all of what we've learned thus far in the book of Hebrews about who Jesus is and what he's done. And since we've learned that Jesus is fully God and fully man, he's a great high priest, he's the great high priest, he's accomplished this salvific workforce on the cross because of what Christ has done, now we're supposed to believe some things and do some things. There's some resultant truth based on who Jesus is and what he's done. The book makes these imperative statements to be obeyed. In Hebrews, we're told things like to endure, to have faith, and to not grow weary, and to endure discipline, and to strive for peace, and to display brotherly love, and to honor marriage, and to hold to sound doctrine, and obey our leaders, and share what we did, uh, excuse me, and, and to share what we have. And all of this is based on something. If it's not based on Christ and the work that he's done, we are just uh, keepers of religion like every other religion in the world. We're, we're just working, hoping that we can earn the salvation that we so desperately desire. But because these commands are based on something that Christ has accomplished for us, uh, they are, they're far more than just religious activity. The truth of Christ and who he is and what he's done, the truth of Christ and the gospel is the fuel in the tank of Christianity. So you can have a really nice vehicle parked in your driveway, and without fuel in the tank, it goes nowhere and it does nothing. And without a proper understanding of who Christ is and of what he's done, operative in your mind and in your heart and affecting you, your Christianity at best will just be religious externalism. You'll just be doing Stuff that looks good and looks right, but the, the fire in your bones, the, the fuel in your tank, the, in, the, the, mo, the, the fuel driving the engine of your life will, will be missing, it will be empty. So in this passage, we'll look to see what is gospel-centered living and Christ-focused living. We'll look at two things, first and foremost, what Christ has done, who he is and what he's done, and then secondly, we'll look at what this produces in us. Okay, so let me look at the passage there. Let me break it down for you here real quickly. Verses 19 and 20, we're going to look at who Christ is and what he's done. Who Christ is and what he's done in verses 19 and 20. Let me read them for you again real quick. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, Okay, in those verses, we see what Christ has done. Verse 21, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, this is, this is who Christ is. Since those things are true, you see in verse, 20, in verse 19 and in verse 21, there's the phrase, since we, since we have, since we have. Since those things are true, verses 22, 23, and 24 all begin with a separate kind of phrase. They all say, let us, let us, let us. So we're going to understand how that, who Christ is and what he's done motivates our Christian living. So first, what Christ has done. Verse 19. 
the writer of Hebrews, we're not exactly sure who it was, the writer of Hebrews addresses this verse to brothers or to brothers and sisters, the same kind of audience that I'm addressing this morning, those who know Christ. I think most of you in this room know Jesus Christ as your Savior. Brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, we'll stop there. Confidence. Brothers, since we have confidence. Now this, this confidence is, is, is not how you feel about a job interview, right? You think, okay, uh, I have confidence that this job interview uh, is is go, is going to go well? I have confidence as I go into it. And it's not it's not that kind of like cross my fingers hopeful kind of confidence. It's more like when when my son or daughter comes to me with a request, they 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 don't think about now how can I well they may think about how I can, how can I manipulate dad uh, that's true and their sinful little hearts but but they're not thinking how can I. How can I put my best foot forward? How can I impress? How can I um, present myself in a way that I know dad's going to receive me and love me? They don't think, they just come. They just come blurt out, dad, can I play video games? Dad, can I have such and such? Dad, can I go, you know, and do such and such? They just, they enter into my presence with, with perfectly comfortable confidence. Because of the blood of Jesus, end of verse 19, because of the blood of Jesus, we have confidence to enter into the holy place, the holy places. And the holy places in this verse uh, would have vivid meaning to the original hearers. We read in the Old Testament of the tabernacle and of the temple, and these places are the places where the presence of God dwelled. And, and once a day, the high priest could enter into the outer holy place, the, the holy place, and he would offer sacrifices there. And then once a year, the, the high priest would enter into the holy of holies to offer a sacrifice. And there were all these rituals and ceremonies that had to be kept. And it was a very really terrifying thing for the priest to go into the presence of God. And the people of God only had access to the presence of God through their priest and their high priest. And there wasn't the option for an Old Testament Jew, just to saunter into the presence of God. But now things have changed. Now things have changed. There's confidence for, for you and I to enter into the holy places, the place where God himself dwells. And we have confidence, not, not based on anything that we've done. No, this passage makes clear the confidence that we have to enter into the holy places is by the work that someone else has done, by, actu- by the actual, actually the, the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ himself sheds blood so that we can have confidence to enter into the presence of God, the holy places. Into an Old Testament saint, this would have been just mind-bending, mind-boggling. What, what do you mean? What do you mean you can have, have access into the presence of God? No one but the high priest has access to God. And yet we're going to look in just a second in verse 20 at a new and living way that's been made uh, available to us through Christ. How do you enter into the presence of God? When you think about how God thinks about you, what does that create in your heart and in your mind? What happens in your chest when you think about how God thinks about you? remember years ago, I think I've shared this with you before, I remember years ago, uh, a friend of mine asking me, Jeremy, what do you think God thinks 
about you? How do you think God thinks about you? And I said, well, I think God is probably frustrated and disappointed with me for the most part. And I remember that friend looking at me and saying, Jeremy, you don't know God very well. And I remember kind of being taken aback by that, right? I mean, I, I was a, a student. I was a, um, a pastoral studies major. I mean, I was giving my life to know the word and, and to knowing God and to pursuing God. And here I have someone tell me that I don't know God very well. And the more I thought about it, and the more I studied scripture over the next few years, the more I realized, you know what, I don't, I don't know God very well. Because I don't go into his presence with confidence. And if I do go into his presence, in, into his presence with confidence, it's only because maybe I had a really good day that day, in my mind, right? So I got up and I read my Bible that day, and, um, and I shared a verse with somebody that day, and maybe I even shared the gospel with somebody that day, right? And I, I, I just kind of had a good day, and so then by the end of the day when it's time to pray, I'm feeling pretty good, right? I go into God's presence with confidence today because, you know, man, I nailed it today. And then the next three days, uh, I live like I normally do, and I realize oh, I can't go into God's presence. Well, well, we don't enter into God's presence based on our own performance ever. We enter into the presence of the, the holy places. We enter into the presence of God confidently by the blood of Jesus. This needs to do, this needs to do a couple things simultaneously when we think about this. Two things need to happen. Number one, we need to be made incredibly humble. When you think about what it took to gain you that confident access into the presence of God, that needs to be an incredibly humbling thing to you, right? So you were so bad. Even, I mean, and I'm looking out across here. Like, you are just a group of really nice people. There are very few of you who I think ill of. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding, right? You're, you, I mean, like everybody in here, I love, I know, I think just about everybody in here, and I, I know you and love you. You're, you're a wonderfully, wonderful group of people. I like being with all of you. Um, and yet, you were so bad, the nicest of you in here were so bad that, that it took the death of the perfect Son of God to bring you back to God. That should do really, uh, that, that should be, devastatingly humbling to you. You don't stand um, at the foot of the old rugged cross and feel proud. The other thing that that should do in your hearts and in your minds simultaneously as you are humbled by the truth of what God has done for you, the other thing that it should do, it should make you overwhelmingly happy. Okay, so I'm really bad. In fact, I'm so bad that God had to sacrifice his son. God killed Jesus to fix my problem. That's humbling. But God did kill his son to fix my problem. He did send Christ. Jesus did give his life for me. His blood was shed to bring me into the presence of God, to give me confidence before him. So, so I am simultaneously made incredibly humble and incredibly happy. And the happiest, humblest people you know are those who know the gospel best. If someone is, is, it's not even appropriately humble, but if someone's like Eeyore all the time, right, because of their sin, oh, I'm, I'm no good, and I'm just a sinner, and I'm, I mean, those things are true, but if they live that way, they don't fully comprehend the gospel yet. 
And if someone thinks, hey, I'm the man, I got everything, you know, um, under control, and Jesus loves me, this I know, and I mean, every, everything's, um, you know, I'm kind of arrived and better than everybody, they don't understand the gospel either. The, the gospel is mutually humiliating and, and thrilling. Verse 20, this confidence, how, how do we gain this confidence? It's, it's gained by a new and living way that he, Christ, opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. By, by the work of Christ, the way is new and living. Again, saints of old didn't have this kind of access to Christ, to the presence of God. It's a, it's a, live, it's a new way, and it's a living way because our sacrifice for sin got up out of the tomb and is living. Right? So the Old Testament saints are watching these, these sacrifices be made and the, the lambs are being slaughtered and the animals, the, the blood sacrifices are being made and there was never a lamb that got up and, and survived the sacrifice of its life. None of those lambs ever got up and walked. But our, our perfect lamb, the lamb of God, Jesus Christ himself actually provided for us a living way. He's a living sacrifice. Revelation actually portrays him as this, this one standing as a lamb who has been slain. This living lamb who was obviously, by John's vision of the lamb, a slain lamb. This lamb had been slain, not just harmed. This lamb had been slain, and yet now this lamb is living. So We have a new and living way. The tabernacle had a curtain a thick, heavy veil keeping people out of the holiest of holy places. And you know, at the death of Christ, that curtain was, was torn asunder. From the top to the bottom, the curtain was torn because Christ, by his shed blood, earned for us a way into the presence of God. In the flesh, verse 20 says, in through his flesh, Jesus was both God and man, and through his physical flesh death, he made a new and living way for us to get to God. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. I love that, that um, verse as a, as a Supportive text, a cross-reference here to verse 20. Christ suffered for sins. He suffered in the flesh, but he did so to bring us back to God. That's what we needed, right? We sinned against God, and, and because of our sin against God, we were put away from God. We were moved out of the presence of God. Adam and Eve sinned, and they were expelled from the garden, and there was an angel given a sword to guard the entrance into the garden, and there was no getting back into the presence of God. They had been expelled from the presence of God. And brothers and sisters, you and I, because of our sin, were separated from God just like Adam and Eve had been separated. But God, in his kindness, initiated a rescue attempt to bring us back to him. And he did this through sending his son, Jesus Christ, to live the perfect life that we couldn't live, that we tried to live and failed, and to die the death that we deserved to die, to bring us back to himself. Jesus himself is the perfect sacrifice. He's the perfect sacrifice and he's the great high priest. So again, the Old Testament Israelites, they would picture the, the priest offering the sacrifice. 
and the priest wasn't the sacrifice, and the sacrifice wasn't the priest. But here, in Hebrews, it's made clear that Jesus is both the priest and the sacrifice. He's the one making the offering, and he's the offering. Look in verse 21. Again, the author here is building us towards some application. Since we have confidence through the work of Christ, and since we have confidence through the person of Christ, verse 21, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, Jesus is the perfect and eternal high priest. Right? He, he did the work, and then he sat down at his Father's right hand, indicating that his priestly service has been fully accomplished. All of this, brothers and sisters, the person and the work of Christ is confidence producing it should produce confidence you've got you've got no business really going into the presence of god on your own but when you when you are in christ you now have you have confidence it's you don't just have permission you don't it's not that you can go in there you you get to go in you you should approach Christ we get to approach Christ with the confidence that a child would would march into his parents uh presence to ask for something so picture now Christ the great priest and and you in him and he stands before the father making you acceptable and bidding you to come into his presence. This is what the author of Hebrews wants us to be thinking. He actually wants our hearts and minds affected by what we're, we're reading right here because, because he's going to make application. And if we don't get all of this, if, if, there aren't, if there aren't some sparks in your heart and mind in verses 19 through 21, we don't need to bother with 22 through 25. They're not going to make sense yet. They're not going to work yet. There's, there's no gas in the tank of your vehicle. Because, because these truths about God, they, they produce something in us, right? So we've seen since we have confidence, since we have a great high priest, what do they produce? There are three phrases there. Verse 23, let us, verse 24, and let us, excuse me, verse 22, let us draw near, Verse 23, let us hold fast. And verse 24, let us consider how to stir one another up. Let's look at these, these three uh, things that are produced in us. First of all, a true heart is produced in us. Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What is a true heart? What is a true heart? says that we can draw near with a true heart, but what is it? Well, it, it's actually defined. It's actually explained for us in the rest of the verse. A heart that has full assurance of faith, a heart that's sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Most simply, a true heart is a saved heart. It's a heart that's been made new by King Jesus. So the Bible describes our hearts as having been dead in trespasses and sins. And when we're saved, God takes a dead heart and he beats life into it. He, he, he uh, affects it in such a way that now what was once dead is made alive. The phrases sprinkled clean and bodies washed refer to the inner and outward cleansing. Baptism is a cleansing, is, a, is a, um, an outward expression of an inward reality. And here the author is referring to that. Um, 
hearts that are sprinkled clean from an evil, consciences, uh, an evil conscience and bodies washed with pure water. So the, the outward sign, bodies washed with pure water, is, uh, is an outward sign of an inward reality where our, our consciences, our hearts are sprinkled clean from an evil consciences. Our consciences are made clean. See, it's not enough to merely acknowledge the claims of the gospel, right? So we can read verses 21 through 20 or excuse me, verses 19 through 21, and think, yeah, I, that's good. I believe those things. I believe that Jesus did those things, and I believe that he's a great priest, and that's, that's good. I believe those things. But, but we're called to more than that. The author here is seeking far more than that. He's actually saying, so since these things are true, let us draw near, but not draw near with a heart that's unaffected with these things. Let's draw near with a heart that's actually affected by these things. Notice that the gospel affects the feelings, the emotions, the heart. Are you, are you affected by the truths of the gospel? When, when you hear a song like the old rugged cross, does anything happen in your heart and mind? When you remember what it took to bring you back to God, is there any, are there any electrical currents happening in there? Is anything firing and not that Christianity, Christianity by no means is based on emotions and feelings, but our emotions and feelings are powerfully affected by the truths of Christianity. So we can't just say, I acknowledge these things. The Bible says that the devil believes these things and trembles. We're to believe these things and have hearts that are made confident. Does gospel meditation make you happy? Does, does gospel meditation create full assurance of faith? In a few minutes, we're going to make application regarding fellowship, and a clean conscience is essential for true fellowship. One of the things it produces in us is a true heart. The next thing I would say it produces in us is confident hope. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. We can, without wavering, have confident hope in what Christ has called us to. We can persevere and we can be confident. The, the book of Hebrews was actually written to a group of people who were undergoing suffering. They, they had a really hard time of it. These were people who were, are going through situations like many of our brothers and sisters around the globe are going through right now. Right, so, so there are people in North Korea, there are people who believe in the name of Jesus Christ in North Korea right now who are persecuted. There are people all throughout the Middle East who have to be very careful because the wrong people finding out that they're Christians means that they will be killed, that they'll be persecuted, that they'll lose their jobs, that they'll lose their families. So, so we actually live in a very unusual place right now, in, both in church history and even in our world today, where we, we live very, very safely. And it's easy, it's very easy for us to find confidence in things that aren't really, in any way, ultimately uh, confidence-giving. So, for instance, um, we, have, we have insurance, we have savings accounts, we have guns, we have, uh, you know, plenty of food, we have water sources. We, ha- we have lots of things that it's very easy for us to find confidence in. But when, when you're undergoing persecution, when the only thing that you have is Christ, what, what the scripture here is saying is you, you have confidence, you have great hope, 
not in any of those other things. You actually have confidence in the script. The passage actually tells us, for he who promised is faithful. So I have confident hope, not in any of my circumstances or surroundings, but I have confidence. I have hope because the one who's promised to do these things in me, to bring me back to God, he is faithful. There are some people who make promises to you, and you hear them make the promise, and you almost immediately think, that'll never happen. Like, I know this guy, he means well, but it's just not going to happen. Like, um, I have no confidence because he's proven through the years to be unfaithful, right? Maybe it could be something as tiny and as simple as he says he's going to be here at 9. There's no way he's going to be here at 9. He's going to be here at 9.30. Okay, that's a really little thing. Or, or maybe it's a bigger thing, right, where he says, I'm going to, uh, you know, let me borrow that money, and I'll pay you the $1,000 back a month from now. And you think, I better just give him that money because I'm never going to see it again. Right, that's a little bit bigger thing. And then there are a few people in your life where you know if they make a promise to you, their word is good. They're, they're faithful, and so you trust in the promise that's made to you from someone else, and you trust them because they have proven themselves to be faithful. Brothers and sisters, no one has proven their faithfulness to us like King Jesus. No one has. And let me, let me just remind us all that the, the one thing, the one work that we needed most was where God proved most faithful. See, it's not just that we needed someone to show up at nine, and it's not just that we needed someone to pay a thousand dollar bill for us we actually needed someone to rescue us from the dead we needed someone to pay for us a a bill that that we could never possibly pay we needed someone to live a life and die for us and god has proven his faithfulness to you in that while we were yet sinners christ died for us so the faithfulness of god has been clearly put on display and when we when we remember the faithfulness of god it gives us confidence so when you go into the presence of god are you confident not because of your performance or because of what you've done, but are you confident because he is faithful? When you interact with other people, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but when you interact with other people, do you interact with them in a way that, in which you're appropriately confident? Or, or are you always fearful and second-guessing? And I am preaching to myself when I make comments like that. We have a confident hope. So first, it produces in us a true heart. Second, it produces in us a confident hope. And then thirdly, and here's where we're going to spend some time, because I believe the passage is actually driving us to verses 24 and 25. It produces in us true fellowship, true Christian fellowship. Verse 24, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Can Think about how you're going to interact with people in such a way that it's going to provoke them to love and good works. Let me, let me ask a question, and I'm going somewhere with this. When I say things like fellowship or accountability or the one another's that are listed in Scripture or grace group or confessing your sins one to another, when I, when I say words or phrases like that, what what comes to your mind? I'm going to guess that there's probably a variety of different responses that come to your mind when I mention those things. For some of you, you think, I love that stuff. I need that stuff. I, I'm, I'm, I'm with you, Jeremy. I don't need this sermon. Let's you know, preach to me about something else. For others of you, you think, I, I'm not sure if I even understand the question you're asking, Jeremy. And then there may be others of you still who think, ah, I don't really like 
that stuff. I don't really like accountability. I don't like transparency. I don't, the confessing my sins one to another, I confess my sins to God. I don't confess my sins to one another. What I, what I want to spend some time doing here in the next, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes is helping us understand how that a proper understanding of the gospel helps us have a healthy understanding of Christian fellowship. How you answer the question, you know, what do you think when I mention those words? How you answer those questions reveal what you believe about the gospel. Because what we've just been looking at pushes us out into the kind of living that we're getting ready to look at. So notice, the word consider. Right? The word consider there is a really uh, important word. Look, look in uh, chapter 3 of Hebrews. Chapter 3, verse 1. So, so consider is a really important word. Verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Same word, same grammatical construction. Consider Jesus. So it's important for us to consider Jesus, to, to think on Jesus. And here that same word, same construction is used to consider one another. But we spend <clears throat> most of our time considering who? Yeah, we spend most of our times, I mean the vast majority of our time, considering ourselves. I do. I mean, I am guilty. I spend most of my time considering myself, how I want to make my life more comfortable, how I want to make my life easier or more pleasant or what have you. And here, God is telling us to consider some things, some specific things about others. Think about just this morning. Think about what you thought about this morning. If for most of it, okay, now I have the unfair advantage of knowing what I was going to preach on, so I, I think by God's grace I was actually able to think some of the right kinds of things this morning. But on a typical Sunday morning, Here's the kinds of things that we think about. We think about what we're going to eat. And then we think about what we're going to wear. And then we think about how we're going to be perceived, right, at church. How am I going to be perceived when I get there? I'm, I'm, I'm wearing some new Christmas stuff. I hope somebody notices. I'm, I'm, not. Uh, I'm not. If I were, I would hope someone was noticing. You're going to think about where you're going to sit in the theater, and who you're going to eat with afterwards, and what you're going to eat afterwards, and how you're going to spend your afternoon, which hopefully includes a nap. Um, I'm just kidding. Well, not for me. I'm not kidding. Um, These things aren't bad to consider, right? They're not bad to consider. You should consider those things. Some of you should possibly give more attention to considering what you're going to wear, Um, and and, um, uh, I'll stop there. Um, They're not bad to consider, so we know, we know what it is. We know how to consider. We know how to think about someone because we do it all the time. We, we think about ourselves. The scripture here is saying, consider how to stir up one another. Now, stir up, this is a cool word. Stir up, some versions have uh, provoke. I kind of like that. Um, the NIV has to spur. I like that, right? Because I like to ride horses and I know a lot of you in here like to ride horses. Um, I've never been allowed to wear spurs when riding a horse though so i'm not sure um what that means uh, for me usually um when i ride horses it's often with some of you in here when i get to ride horses you put me on the horse that knows best 
how to be a horse. Um, and so I get to act like I'm this great rider, and it's really just the horse. Um, you just point me in the right, you know, with the head and tail the right direction, and uh, I enjoy riding horses. But, but spurring on, I like this idea. Um, scripture says in Proverbs, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. See, um, spurring a horse doesn't harm the horse. It causes just enough kind of uncomfortableness to get the horse to do what you need it to do. What we're called to do here with each other, okay, this is not natural. This is not normal. This is not comfortable. But brothers and sisters, our church needs to be marked by this kind of living. We need to interact with each other in such a way that I spur you on to love and good works, and we'll talk about what those mean in a second, and you spur me on to love and good works. And, and sometimes that means that you cause me just enough uncomfortableness for me to change my ways and to do what's right. I've experienced this from some of you. This is a good thing, okay? Pastors aren't in some kind of different category where they don't need the application of this into their lives. It's not like I preach this to you and then I just kind of watch, okay? Are they spurring each other on? I hope so. Uh, You dare not spur me on. I'm a pastor. No, it's ridiculous. Uh, We need mutual We need mutual spurring, and sometimes that means you prove your faithfulness to someone else by calling them aside, having coffee with them, going out for lunch with them, and just saying, I see this in your life, and I'm I'm concerned. I I remember the first time a really close friend of mine confronted me about something. I'd never had that happen before. Anytime I'd been confronted, it had been like by my dad or by a teacher or by someone in a position of authority. And I remember I was in college, Tommy Kendall. He came up to me, and I honestly don't even remember what he confronted me about, but I remember him doing it, and I thought to myself, what are you doing? You can't, you can't like, talk to me about, like, my bad stuff, right? Like, that's between me and God. And I think I faked some kind of humility as he talked with me, and then when he was gone, I just remember being like, dude, that's not cool. We're kind of done, I think. And you know what? God was kind to remind me that, more than any of my other friends, he had proven his friendship to me through spurring me, through, through wounding me faithfully, as a friend would do. So let us consider, let us give thought to, let's intentionally think about how we're going to stir each other up to loving good works. And sometimes that means using the spurs. None of us like that. We're, it's not natural for us to do that, but we need it. We need to do it and we need to receive it. Sometimes uh, we confuse the faithful wounds of a friend. We think they're being proud or we think they're being arrogant or we think they're being nosy and they're just being a, a, a loving, faithful friend to us. So we're to consider, we're to think about. So take a moment, think about the people around you. How well do you know them? The people behind you, the people in front of you, the people next to you. Do, you. do you know the people that you are gathered with together in this faith family? That's obviously an incredibly important part if we're going to consider how we're going to do this with each other. Because in every setting with all Christians, we can do this. Husbands, you can do it with your wives. Parents, you can do it with your kids. Kids, you can do it with your parents. Uh, um, You can do it with your peers, and you should do it with your peers. Um, I don't know, a few weeks ago, I was 
fearful and upset about something. I don't even remember. I don't remember what it was, but I, I just remember being in my room and um, I do some of my best worrying uh, when I'm brushing my teeth and that sort of thing. And I was, I was thinking about something. And I don't remember what it was. And I looked over uh, on the closet door next to me and there was this. This, this is the actual paper that was hanging up there. Uh, Christiana is, is learning to read and to write. <clears throat> and so I, I looked there and, uh, and I read this. Um, it says, God, great, God is, he, tack, is, care of me. God is great, he takes care of me. And, and I read this, um, and for a dad who is fearful and giving, um, giving way to the wrong kinds of thoughts and the wrong kinds of fears, God used this little paper with my five-year-old daughter's chicken scratch on it to provoke me and to encourage me. So a five-year-old blessing her 35-year-old daddy's heart. And I don't know, it's not like it's a passage that we're memorizing at home. I don't know if it's something she learned from, you know, seeds here or, or what, but she's just writing out, she's just getting paper and writing stuff here lately. And I don't, I mean, it just literally, she, she loves to do this. She makes art, she draws things, she writes things, and then she just goes and tapes them around the house, everywhere. The walls, if you come to my house, there's stuff just randomly taped on the walls. And I can't, I can't bring myself to take it down. I just think it's, well, actually we did. We said, we really want you to put it all on this wall. We, wanted to, we want you to put it on one wall. Um, and so, Christiana, thank you. Thank you for helping point me and remind me that Jesus is great. God is great and he'll take care of me. And that did your dad, <clears throat> your dad's heart really good. So here's a little one provoking kids. Do this with your parents, right? I mean, write it. You can do the same thing. Um, they'll know you learned it from me, but get a, get a sticky note and write a Bible verse and stick it on your parents' mirror um, to, to provoke them to loving good works. It can be really little things. It can be making a casserole for someone. There, there's, not, there's not like a list of really important, big, stirring up, provoking kind of things that, that need to be done. Think about the people around you and, and you've got to know them well enough to know where they're hurting and, and where their needs are and then go and bless them. <clears throat> get a pictorial directory and pray through it and get to know the names of the children of everybody in the church and, and think, okay, what, what do I know? So I'm, I'm flipping through. I don't know who's the first one, Anderson or Altamirano or Ashley. I mean, there's the A's, right? Okay, well, how well do I know Tom and Kathleen? How well do I know Parker and Caitlin? Um, I want to pray for them. I don't even know what to pray. I don't even know them well enough to pray anything specific. Okay, I'm, gonna, I'm going to get to know them somehow. We're going to have them over for dinner so that we can get to know them, so that we can provoke them to love and good works. This is the kind of considering that you've got to do. And this won't happen, brothers and sisters, unless we're spending time together. And again, God anticipates that this is where this is going because look in verse 25. Okay, so we're supposed to consider, verse 24, how to stir one another up to love and good works. And verse 25 says, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So, so we're to gather, we're not to neglect to meet together, we're to gather together for these purposes of encouragement. So encouragement here in verse 25 is kind of the, it's kind of the other side of the coin to spurring, right? So spurring, is, it's got a little bit of pain in it to, to motivate, to, to get you where. And then encouraging is that Barnabas kind of coming alongside someone when you see they're down and encouraging them, blessing them. And often, 
often we are better at one than the other. And what God wants us to do is to do both, right? So some of us are good spurers, right? I mean, it's like we've got some ginormous spurs and we are ready to use them, right? We see issues in other people's life and it's like, hey, come over here because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a spur, right? And then there's others of us who like, oh man, I know that that person's really struggling with a lot of sin. I'm not going to talk about that. I'm just going to go and just, just love on them, right? Okay, and both of those um, are necessary, but we individually need to start getting good at both of those things. So I need to be able to look in Nathan Oscom's life and think he needs encouragement here and he needs spurring here. I'm not thinking of anything, bro. I just saw you and um, so I picked you. Um, so uh, remember the fellowship that we, we enjoy with God when we, when we enter into the holy places with confidence? Well, here is the reality of how that fellowship with God works out. Right? We, we're, we have been given, in verses 20, uh, 19 through 21, we've been given this access, this confident access to God, this fellowship with God. And First John tells us, First John 1, 3, that we have seen, excuse me, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. So we gather together, and Sunday morning is a start, but it's only just that. Sunday morning gatherings are just a start. Sunday morning essentially is our singing corporately and then a monologue from the scripture. Those are necessary. Those are important parts of Christian life. But they are not, they are not enough. You might say, really? They're not enough? This passage makes clear that the kind of Christian activity that's happening can't just happen when everyone sits down together and faces it the same way and listens to one guy talk. You can't do these things right now. It would be really disruptive if you tried, okay? Um, I wouldn't, I'd stop and just join in. Um, Paul Tripp has written an incre- in a really uh, encouraging book uh, called Dangerous Calling. It's a, a, a book about pastoral ministry, but in there he talks about the importance of uh, fellowship and one another ministry. He says this, <clears throat> the, the Bible envisions two essential independent and complementary ministries of the word. Okay, so two, they're essential, they're interdependent, and they're complementary. First, there's the public ministry of the word. That's what I'm doing right now this morning. This is the regularly scheduled preaching, uh, public teaching and preaching of God's word to a gathered group. A second, complementary ministry of the word, uh, excuse me, is the private ministry. This ministry does not have a different body of content No, it takes the general truths that everyone has been hearing and applies them with specificity to the lives of individual believers so that they can more concretely understand what it means to live in light of the things that they're being taught. Neither ministry is a luxury. Each is an essential part of God's bifactoral, that means two two factors, two two things, bifactoral, word-centered growth strategy for the local church. I believe that. I believe this passage is one passage that makes clear that there's two kinds of word ministry that need to be happening simultaneously in the life of every believer. So I don't think it's enough for you to come on Sunday and sit shoulder to shoulder facing one who gives a, 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 a monologue and then go and live Lone Rangerly the rest of the week. It's not, it's not the picture that Scripture gives to us and we have to be intentional if this is going to happen, right? Because as soon as this sermon is over, bam, the week starts, and it is high-ho silver 
uh, I did, that was actually not intended to refer to the Lone Ranger. I mean, it's just, we, we are, that was a little Freudian slip. I've been thinking about the Lone Ranger. Um, uh, our, our lives just take off, and it's 100 miles an hour, full steam ahead, especially for mommies, especially for mommies, all right? I don't, see, yeah, anyway, I mean, we're, you know, how old is Abraham? He's three weeks old, four, three weeks old, right? So um, I have to fight just to say hello to my wife sometimes because she's so busy. I don't fight with her. I just mean we have to work to make time for each other. Life is busy, and this kind of considering and stirring each other up and encouraging one another in a gathered way won't just happen. Because remember, left to ourselves, we run from each other. Left to ourselves, we run and we, we snag fig leaves and we hide because we're sinners and we're aware that we're sinners. But what we've just learned is that we have confidence to approach God and therefore we have confidence to approach each other because I know how bad Mark Edwards is. I know he's bad. The scripture makes it clear he's bad. And so I don't expect him when I sit down with him for an accountability lunch, I don't expect him to say everything in my life is great. And Mark knows his word, and so when Mark sits down with me, he knows I'm bad because the word of God's made it clear. Jeremy's a desperate sinner who is in desperate need of a glorious Savior. And so there's a, there's a safety when we meet with each other. We don't have to hide and pretend that we are something that we aren't. The scripture already makes it really clear. He's bad, I'm bad. Let's, let's mutually stir each other up. So Mark, where are you weak? Where are you struggling? Where can I help you? And Jeremy, where, you know, Mark talking now. Jeremy, where are you weak? Where are you weak? Where, where, are, you, where are you struggling? Where do you need help? Let me, let me speak words of truth. Let me spur you where you need spurred and encourage you where you need encouraged. And brothers and sisters, this, this needs to be happening. This must be happening with, every, with everyone in the church. You don't, you don't get the Lone Ranger option. And, and if you try to live Lone Rangerly, I hope there will be some of us who come and be your tonto, where we, we come alongside you and say, um, I'm going to spur you, I'm going to actually spur you to not be a Lone Ranger. There are a lot of different ways that these things can happen. But for many, uh, church life is kind of a, an afterthought, right? It's something you do Sunday morning between 10.30 and 12, and like, that's, that's it, right? And you think, well, I haven't forsaken the, the gathering of myself together. Well, yes, Sunday morning worship is certainly an application of not neglecting to meet together, but, but we're not going to fulfill the, the stirring each other up and the encouraging um, during, during this time. So there's got to be some other time. There are other ways it can happen. Uh, you can have people over into your home for dinner. You can go out for coffee with people. You could attend a grace group. You could attend T2. You could establish some kind of girls' night out where uh, husbands take care of the, the kids and you get together with the intentional purpose of, of stirring each other up and encouraging each other. We've got to make it happen. It won't happen. It won't even happen at these meetings unless we're intentional about making it happen, right? Because many of us have gathered with other Christians and we talk about weather and sports and kids and hunting, hopefully, and then that's it, right? And, and, and we think, oh, I had great fellowship tonight. Uh, well, no, I mean, you, you had pizza and you talked about sports with Christian people, but true Christian fellowship is having Christ at the center of it. Remember, First John says that our fellowship is with the Father. 
So our fellowship with the Father is what, is what uh, energizes and motivates our fellowship with, with each other, informs our fellowship with each other. Uh, in uh, late January, early February, we're going to be um, emphasizing our grace groups once again. Um, and let me just say this, grace group is not commanded in Scripture. Um, you don't have to go to grace group. Grace group isn't the only way that these things can happen in your life. We as a pastoral leadership think it's a great way for these kinds of things to be happening in your life. Okay, so please understand very clearly what I am saying and what I'm not saying. I am saying you've got, you've got to figure out a way to make verses 22 through 25 reality in your life, especially verses 24 and 25. You have to. You've got to. I need to be able to come to you and say, how, are, how, are, how is the stirring up and encouraging of other Christians happening in your life. And you need to be able to come up with something. It doesn't mean you have to go to grace group. I do think that grace group is a ministry, a way for these kinds of things to happen in a very healthy and natural setting. You might say, well, I've been to grace group before and those things didn't happen. There, there, are, there are bad grace groups. Not here at Grace Church. I'm sure that's other churches that you've gone to. Um, so, and but just because, just because one was a dud or several were a dud, it doesn't mean that we, again, that we throw the, the baby out with the bathwater. Um, this is what we're striving for. Grace groups aren't what we're striving for, but grace groups is a vehicle that we're seeking to, to get into so that these things can happen. If you've got better ways, if you've got different ways, share them with me. I am not committed to grace groups. I am committed to these things happening in the life of our church. Does that make sense? I hope, I hope so, okay? I hope you hear what I'm saying loudly and clearly. So if I come and say, um, what grace group do you go to or have you thought about going to grace group? You don't have to be defensive. You can say, you know what? I'm not gonna go to grace group and that's fine. Just start telling me how these things are happening, okay? Because this is what I'm after. This is what I'm after. This is what God's after. I didn't make it up. God made it up. <clears throat> I lost my place here in my notes. I got a little bit sidetracked. Okay, so so. Um, rewinding all the way back to verses 19 through 20. If you don't know who Christ is and what he's done for you, you won't be able to appropriately receive or, or give true Christian fellowship. You'll be afraid. You'll feel like you have to hide. You'll think, I know how bad I am, and I don't want anybody else knowing how bad I am. Well, God knows how bad you are, and he told everybody else how bad you are. You'll be more aware of what other people think of you than of what Christ thinks of you. And, and other than my wife, no one in here knows how much I'm preaching to myself right now. Um, I, I, don't, I don't have this mastered at all. If there is a regular and continual besetting sin of mine in my life, it is the fear of man. I look at you, I'm preaching, and in the back of my mind it's happening even now. What do they think? I hope they like me. I think so-and-so doesn't like me. I can tell by the way they just yawned. I, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking thoughts like that. And, and the, I mean, the, the only way, I, I want to try to get comfortable again by thinking, oh, no, I know they really do like me. Well, they actually might not. And, and that's okay because God does. And God does because of what Christ has done, and I'm in Christ. So I can go and talk to those of you who don't like me. I'm just kidding. I, I really don't think there's anyone in here who doesn't like me, but it does bother me when you yawn in the middle of my making a point. Okay. <clears throat> we'll be afraid. We'll be more aware of what other people think. We won't be able to think of others properly. We'll be too proud to profit from fellowship. We won't want fellowship. We won't think we need fellowship. There's all kinds of ways that we can 
uh, miss out on the Christian fellowship that God has for us because, not because we don't understand fellowship, but because we don't understand the gospel. So, so the confidence, the, the true heart, the confidence of hope that's given to us in the gospel is what motivates and informs our Christian fellowship. One pastor said this, if you are not secure in the gospel, you will find genuine relationships with other Christians to be very difficult. I believe that's true. Many of you are very familiar with the 10 ministry commitments that our church has. Uh, They're posted on our website. It's been a while since we've reviewed them together as a faith family, but let me remind you of ministry commitment number eight. If you're a member of our church, you committed to, to living this way with each other. Commitment to authenticity and accountability. And there's two passages listed there. The first one is this passage, the one we're looking at, Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. It says that, the, the commitment says this, believers must go beyond superficial relationships and be committed to intimacy in each other's lives. Continually stirring up one another to love God and love others. The church must minister, must minister to both the physical and spiritual needs of the body. Selfless, sacrificial love is the defining mark of Christ's disciples and the continual requirement for flawed humans to work together demands a sacrificial giving of one's self for, other, for another. So, so we are to stir each other up, to love God and love others. That's, that's what's summarized here too. To love and good works. So, Don't be a lone ranger. Don't be a lone ranger. Join in with the family, the family of desperately wicked sinners who have been rescued by a wonderfully glorious Savior and have been given confidence to enter into the presence of God and therefore can have confidence as we enter into the presence of each other. So my my primary encouragement this morning is not to attend Grace Group. My primary encouragement this morning is not even to try to figure out a way to have more fellowship with one another. My primary encouragement this morning is to consider, to remember who Christ is and what he has done. That is what the author of Hebrews has for us throughout the entirety of the book. That's what God, the author of the entire book, wants us to remember. And that's what I want to encourage you with this morning, to remember who Christ is and what he's done. This will enable you to have true Christian fellowship.